Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Brown. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider the making of an artist. We were lucky enough to talk to author Brian Washington. His debut novel just came out in October. It's called Memorial. And he's had a lot of press for it. And so rather than ask him all the usual questions, we asked him what his influences were and what his path was to becoming an author. I found this interview fascinating. I just love talking to Brian. I have an image in my mind of the person who becomes a writer, someone who's always been drawn to the written word, their head always in books, the library as a refuge as a child. And that is not at all Brian's story. Uh, You can see that too in his writing. He has a style that's different. It has different rhythms and priorities. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it was really interesting both to read his book, which I really enjoyed, and then to hear him talk about how he came to write it. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I love is he's been able to find huge success on his own artistic terms, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, (laughs) Not at all. His debut short story collection, Lot, was on Obama's top books of 2019 list. And Memorial is a sensation. Yeah. Incredible. Can I just say, I would really like it if one day I woke up and my book was on Obama's top 10 books. Yes. If you're listening, (laughs) if you're listening, President Obama, that would be a real treat. (laughs) It'll be on my top 10 list of 2021, Julie. Thank you. Well, Brian Washington is a writer from Houston. His fiction and essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, BuzzFeed, The BBC, Vulture, The Paris Review, Tin House, everywhere. Bon Appetit, (laughs) Bon Appetit, American Short Fiction, GQ, The Believer. I mean, everywhere, anywhere that's amazing, he's been there, including Catapult, where he wrote a column called Bayou Diaries. He's also a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 winner, a New York Public Library Young Lions Award recipient, an Ernest J. Gaines Award recipient, an International Dylan Thomas Prize recipient, a Lambda Literary Award recipient, and wait, there's more, Ken <laughs> Robert Bingham Prize finalist, National Books Critics Circle John Leonard Prize finalist, and the recipient of an O. Henry Award. Oh my God. He's incredible. <laughs> Memorial came out at the end of October and the New York Times named it a notable book of 2020. Time called it one of their books of the year. And it's already been nominated for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence and the Center for Fiction's 2020 First Novel Prize. And it was chosen by Good Morning America as the GMA November 2020 Book Club Read. Good Lord almighty above, as we used to say in the South. I love when you get Southern on me. (laughs) So we started the interview at the very beginning, which is, of course, the very best place to start. We were interested in a little about what you were like as a child, like what kind of reader you were. Did you write at all aside from what was required at school? Were you the kind of kid who had a diary? That sort of thing. 
No. <laughs> no. No writing, no. no reading. No, no, no. I read less than the person in your life that reads the least. Um, but I think that I watched an excess of film. And I think that, well, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time. I was really fortunate, really privileged that my access to foreign film or film foreign from the States, I just had access to swaths of many different canons and that was a boon for me in my sort of conception and understanding of what narrative was and what narrative could be and the many different forms that it could take wasn't codified like any one way or another by American literary fiction in any regard really so that when I did start writing and I started writing in earnest I suppose because they went to a university in Houston where Matt Johnson was teaching for a time now he's out in Oregon and I took the course because I worked a lot during undergrad and this was a course that satisfied the credits that I needed to get and I was not working at that particular point in the afternoon Yeah, it was just deeply convenient. I took it and he was just really generous and really thoughtful. And that in a lot of ways was like an impetus to just see how much further I could keep going with it. I have a couple of follow-up questions already. One is, why did you have such wide access to film, to foreign film and unusual film? The other is, when you first set out to write, given you know, that you weren't a reader and you weren't a writer and, you know, you were fairly relatively old then to sort of come to this in such a roundabout way. Did you deliberately try to translate film to page or what did you do? (laughs) How did you start? Mm, Yeah. So for the first answer, I really don't have like a sexy answer. We just had like a well-stocked blockbuster and Hollywood video. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I think, you know, I lived in a, like a really not diverse neighborhood, but like my particular street and some of the streets surrounding it were deeply diverse and the neighborhoods surrounding my neighborhood were more diverse. So I think that the whims and the requests film-wise from the surrounding area dictated what that particular, those particular locations stocked, which was like a boon for me and like a privilege. And I think that the act of trying to carry over text from the screen and trying to imbue a scene with a orality and with a sort of physical presence is something that certainly was important to me from the outset and perhaps even more so now. It was especially exacerbated in Memorial because so many of the interactions between characters are punctuated by they're not saying something or they're not talking. So the question of like how close bodies are to one another or the breath of someone else or like the timbre of their voice or like the beats in the conversation were things that I was hyper-conscious of when I was drafting and editing. And I think that I only got to that point as a result of having spent so much time just like thinking about like, okay, like how can I take this sort of capsule that I see on the screen and these sort of spatial motifs that I'm seeing on the screen and the ways that they're rolling out like in front of me and put that on the page in a way that's like digestible and isn't 
heavy handed so that it just feels like a scene, like you are in a scene in lieu of reading about two folks that are in a scene. I think that there's like a tangible difference between the two. Do you remember watching any particular films as a kid and thinking, hang on, there's something going on here beyond just the story that I'm watching? There's a craft here. There's something else that's really interesting going on. And I want to think more about that. Yeah, there's a film called uh, Good Morning or Ohio by Yajusiro uh, Ozu that I saw when I was in middle school. And it's a film in which not quite a lot happens at all. <laughs> you know, like nothing really happens. But the dynamics of the characters and the way in which Ozu was able to create an iteration of the world through just this pocket of a neighborhood and the sort of domestic concerns that each of the characters had was really formative. And while I certainly wouldn't have been able to say it in that way at the time, like just seeing how you could paint a larger picture of the world through a very specific slice of a particular place was something that I was conscious of something happening beyond the sort of outer story. Yeah. Yeah. And you found that just by walking into, like you just would walk into the blockbuster and say, oh, that looks kind of cool. Or did you have friends or family who were steering you in particular directions? Where I grew up in just like outside of Houston. And while it's very built up today and like, it was like rice fields and there was like a football field and then there is like a church and then there's like blockbuster going over to someone's house and like watching movies was a thing to do so it really just made our way through the foreign film section or foreign films to the states like two three four times over sure can you tell us a little bit about um about your family? Were there writers or book lovers or storytellers among your family members or, or any of your close friends growing up? Mm. So for immediate family, no writers, but ample storytellers. My parents and also throughout the neighborhood, and they had like a pretty diverse set of friends. So I was really privileged to hear like a lot of different stories from like a lot of different places. And amongst my friends, I think it's pretty much the same in that like I'm the only one who is like monetized writing, so to speak, but I don't know that that has much or even anything to do with like the inclination to tell a story, which I think they all have, right? Some of whom I think are significantly better than me, but just really been privileged to get to spend time with folks who appreciate narrative and appreciate story. And I think that that was also structurally useful to see and be around folks for whom like the written word was like an entity and an important entity, but not like the entity as far as like narrative is concerned and sort of see the elasticity of the way a story can be told and what sort of like stays with you and what doesn't. Yeah. Are there any particular stories or kinds of stories that you feel made an, a really big impression on you? Or can you remember? I'm just curious for an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about. Mm, we had a lot of cookbooks in my home growing up. We had a, like 
quite a lot of science fiction, whether it was like Sammy Delaney or Octavia Butler and so on. But we also had like cookbooks from like a myriad of places, like regardless of whether like anyone actually cooked for them. I think that my parents were both taken by like the cookbook as like an object. So I started reading cookbooks extensively, right? Like I wouldn't read for classes, but like I could read a cookbook. And I think that that story form of the cookbook that had like an outsized impact on how I conceive of narrative and that it's 400 to 1200 words of narrative and you get an entire narrative arc in the best of them. I think that's like the height of technical achievement to bring a reader or an audience through a myriad of emotions, like in a very short space. And I think that that's not entirely divorced from like my own writing structure and that like regardless of whether it's short stories or whether it's a novel like my sense of scene is really like 2,000 words and under. Can you give an example of a cookbook or an author of a cookbook who does this really well you think? I think that Enid Donaldson's A Real Taste of Jamaica did it really well. I'm just thinking of texts like from when you know I was quite young because I think a lot of people do it really well. John Birdsall, while he is not like explicitly writing recipes, like he's someone who I started reading a while ago and reading his work was the first time that I really intuited the connection that queerness and cuisine could have. Like he used to write like these anecdotes on Tumblr and they would be like 800 to like 1500 words, but they were just like some of the most beautiful things that like I had read. I think that really early cookbook is uh, the Patti LaBelle cookbook, believe it or not, which is like a lovely cookbook simply because everything in it is cookable and everything is cookable to like standard from like the beginner onward like I think that's rare to have a cookbook that like just every recipe like is both achievable and like has a massive payoff but there's a story that she tells about her sister and like a sandwich that she would ask her for while she was in the hospital and it is a very short narrative like it's under 1100 words I read it when I was in junior high I want to say and it takes you through the full arc of emotions from humor to mourning to that sort of space in between with like a pretty big emotional payoff at the end of it and all of it's for like an ex-sandwich which is just really remarkable. In junior high when you were reading those kinds of cookbooks you were also cooking from them or you were mostly just picking them up off the shelf and reading? Both my parents worked, so it was very much a situation of if I wanted to eat, I needed to learn how to cook something for myself. But I did know even though I was like deeply comfortable in kitchens and sort of like in that space. And I quite liked that you could spend time working on something and then by the end of it, you would have something, right? And whether or not that particular thing, whether it was like a pastry, whether it was a sandwich, whether it was a salad, souffle, whatever, whether or not it was like a good Something is like entirely, you know, a whole other question. But you would, you know, you did end up with something. I love that Brian developed an understanding for story and how it might be constructed on the page in so many places far from what we tend to think of as literature. Cookbooks, for one, and also movies and just stories from the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Already, since we spoke with him, this interview has had an impact on what I say to kids during school visits. Really? What are you saying to the kids? Yeah. So I used to say, you know, if you want to be a writer, read, read, read. It's really important to read. 
and of course I want people to read. I, I, you know, I think it's wonderful and it is helpful to writing. If you read, that's certainly true, but I say something a little different now. I say, just pay attention to stories, to stories that appeal from you where, wherever you are finding it and think mm. about what you're enjoying about the story and how the story flows. It's such a great message. And I think it's a liberating message. There's so much snobbery. You know, kids are constantly pressured to reading books that are, quote, good for them. And I hate that. Kids should read and write what they enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to look up some of the cookbooks that he mentioned and Mm -hmm. see what kinds of stories he was talking about. I haven't been able to find online the cookbooks from his childhood, but I was able to find a more recent Patti LaBelle cookbook called Desserts LaBelle, Soulful Sweets to Sing About. Take a listen to this one story that she tells in the recipe that accompanies a cake called Fouillefouissay, which is a French word. It's a French name. Okay. She says, a big reason I wanted to include it in this book is because its inspiration is my grandmother, Ellen. She made the best wine cake I have ever tasted. Between her jam cake and her wine cake, I'm hard-pressed to say which one I loved more. They were both made from elderberries, which grew all over Grandmother Ellen's Florida farm. And when I say all over, I mean everywhere. Her farm was close to the St. Martin River, which Grandmother Ellen said fed the soil with all kinds of minerals that made elderberries grow. Uncle Dave, that's what I called my grandfather, don't ask me why, said it had nothing to do with the river, but that Grandmother Ellen knew and practiced some kind of voodoo that made elderberries grow. I don't know if it was the minerals in the river or the magic in Grandmother Ellen, but it was something. By summer's end, there were more elderberries growing on that farm than Grandmother Ellen knew what to do with, but she never let a single one go to waste, not after she'd spent all day picking them in the hot sun. Grandmother Ellen made elderberry everything, elderberry jelly, elderberry syrup, elderberry dumplings, elderberry pie, and of course, her famous elderberry jam cake. Her favorite thing to make with elderberries, however, was wine. In August, when Grandmother Ellen said the elderberries were at their sweetest, she stomped them by the bucketful, sometimes for hours at a time. The only time I ever saw her take a break was when she disappeared into the kitchen for more chewing tobacco or into the outhouse for, well, you know what for. When I close my eyes, I can still see her standing in the yard, smiling and laughing and stomping and singing as she smashed those elderberries like there was no tomorrow. Even though they stained her feet bright purple, Grandmother Ellen never crushed them with her hands. She said using your hands did something to the seeds that made your wine bitter. And sweet wine was worth walking around with purple feet. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) It's a whole story. It's the story of a summer. It's the story of Grandmother Ellen and the place and the time. Oh, God, that was so good. You know, writing a whole story in just a few words is really, really hard. And I think my favorite example of a super, super short story is Annie Proulx's short story, 55 Miles to the Gas Pump. Do you know that story, Julie? No. Oh, it's so good. It's a riff on the Bluebeard story. And I'm just going to read it here because it's so short and so good and has nothing to do with cookbooks. It's just a straight up fiction short story. Rancher Croom in handmade boots and filthy hat, that wall-eyed cattleman, stray hairs like the curling fiddle string ends, that warm-handed quick foot dancer on splintery boards or down the cellar stairs to a rack of bottles of his own strange beer, yeasty, cloudy, bursting out in garlands of foam. Rancher Croom at night, galloping drunk over the dark plain, 
turning off at a place he knows to arrive at Canyon Brink, where he dismounts and looks down on tumbled rock, waits, then steps out, parting the air with his last roar, sleeves surging up, windmill arms, jeans riding over boot tops. But before he hits, he rises again to the top of the cliff like a cork in a bucket of milk. Mrs. Croom on the roof with a saw cutting a hole into the attic, where she has not been for 12 years, thanks to old Croom's padlocks and warnings, wets to her desire, and the sweat flies as she exchanges the saw for a chisel and hammer, until a ragged slab peak is free and she can see inside. Just as she thought. The corpses of Mr. Groom's paramours. Oh my God. <laughs> she recognizes them from their photographs in the paper. Missing woman. Some desiccated as jerky and much the same color. Some moldy from lying beneath roof leaks. And all of them used hard, covered with tarry handprints, the mark of boot heels. Some bright blue with remnants of paint used on the shutters years ago. One wrapped in newspaper nipple to knee. When you live a long way out, you make your own fun. Oh my God. <laughs> I suppose I should have given a warning. <laughs> this is a real disturbing story. Wow. Isn't it amazing what you can do with so little space? Yeah. It's 250 words. If you're Andy Pruel. Yeah. <laughs> right. You make your own fun. <laughs> you make your own fun. That yeah. is fantastic. It's a great story, a really great story. But Returning to great stories and great writers or pivoting <laughs> yeah. back to a different great writer. <laughs> the last two years of high school, I got it in my head that I would be a baker, <laughs> you know, but I also thought that I would teach ESL and that would just be my life. And it would be something that I enjoyed. And until two years ago, that's what I was doing. Like I was teaching ESL and I quite liked it. You've said a little bit about this, but we wanted to know, you know, sort of why all of a sudden you decided to try writing. I gather it was because it was a convenient class for you to take. But can you tell us a little more about the actual experience of trying it and feeling you must have felt some reward and validation from it and sort of why you kept going? I think that the question of reward and validation isn't too far from the question of monetization. We're in November of 2020 now. If you asked me even like a year and a half ago if I was a writer, I'd say, no, I'm an ESL teacher. And also, regardless of whether like I was in a position to monetize it, I'd still be writing. It's a way of me organizing my thoughts and sort of organizing events and just sort of thinking through questions or preoccupations, whether they're like thematic or structural. And it's been the case for me for some time. And I think I was really fortunate in that I continually found myself getting to work with folks who were receptive to the sort of questions and concerns that I had, folks who were open to me, sort of problematizing like the questions that I had, most of which like didn't have like clear cut answers didn't necessarily have immediately monetizable narratives like getting to do that early and often was a gift and now I'm pretty insistent on it for memorial it would be it was like almost cartoonish how little interest I thought that people would have in you know a book 
that is like essentially a love story where there are no clear resolutions whatsoever. <laughs> it's, you know, across continents, like multiculti, like comedy. That it's a book that really doesn't cut quite down the middle of any particular emotional stratum or genre or anything like that. But I wanted to see where the characters would end up. If this book would, if it was possible to pull off this particular book that takes place halfway in Houston and halfway in Osaka and is a love story and also a story about family and also a story about home and also a story about being comfortable with oneself and was a bit structurally tricky and maybe didn't come to any clear conclusions. Wanting to see what it would ultimately become was what got me to finish it. And I think that that's been a sort of MO for me, having a series of questions and wanting to follow them to the end of their either logical conclusion or sort of my interest in them or until I got to a point where I said, okay, like perhaps this isn't an answer or the answer, but the arc of trying to figure out that answer is like an answer in and of itself. And like, I can move on to the next perhaps related series of questions and concerns. Yeah. I would love to know a little bit about your teaching. Why did you decide to get an MFA? And then I'm curious about your approach to teaching or, you know, maybe what are some of the books on your syllabus and why have you chosen them? Yeah, I chose to get an MFA because I had a project in mind, like the beginnings of LOT were already in mind. And I was keen on getting an MFA somewhere where I would not lose money. And I was really fortunate to study with Joanna Leek, who could not have been more supportive. But as far as like what I teach, like I teach at Rice right now, and really lucky to get to work with the students that I do in that most of them aren't looking to monetize writing or like to monetize narrative and are coming to the course like purely out of interest in narrative or like interest in story and that feels really rare we read ya like we read sci-fi we read horror like we read a lot of fiction in translation like we read memoir we read poetry and getting to talk about the different forms that story can take without having preconceived notions of like this is what a story only can be or what story is or how does this specifically and explicitly work toward my conception of story or like the project that I'm trying to do feels really nice. Yeah. Are there a couple of books or stories that you like reading in tandem to show what you're saying about different forms and everything being an option? You mean as part of teaching, Julie? Yes, as part of teaching. Yes. Um. Rachel Kong's Goodbye Vitamin. I teach pretty often. Uh, Daniel Zamparelli's Everything is Terrible and You're a Horrible Person, which is a collection that I quite adore. Nafisa Thompson Spears' Heads of the Color People is a text that I teach quite a lot. The Autograph Man by Zadie Smith is a text that I end up teaching quite a lot. The Housekeeper and the Professor by Yoko Ogawa. And Cheng Rei Lee's Food Writing that he's done in the New Yorker, I end up teaching a good deal. Um, mm-hmm. Different ways of approaching 
narrative and different ways of approaching ideas of like family and home and also the sort of internal movements that a character can drift through and how the rhythms of those movements can change over time. Interesting. It's interesting what he said about a character drifting through and just the rhythm of these kinds of moments, these random moments. You know, we often talk about story arcs for a book and how readers feel satisfied if the protagonist makes progress. But I wonder a little bit about how much of that conversation is actually generational and maybe the contours of story itself do and should shift with the times. Does that make sense what I just said? Yeah, it does. Story does shift. What's considered convention does shift. And I think for Brian, um, he's doing new things. I so appreciate the complexity of his characters, you know, that they're human beings with abundant contradictions and the open-ended nature of his storytelling and how multiple truths are there at all times. And I love that he prioritizes asking questions and that he's okay if there aren't answers. Yeah. And you and I have spoken since this interview and since we read Memorial about how his characters have really stuck with us in a way that just isn't true of a lot of books. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to read more of his writing as he writes. Yes. I'm excited to follow him too. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please, please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. It's really how it just helps people find us, the more ratings and reviews that we have. Yes. And be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Brian at bryywashing.com or on Twitter at brywashing. Brian is spelled with a Y. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.